we will look at Matthew 5, 17 through 20, where we read these words. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The word of the Lord. Father, we read those words, and uh, sometimes it's hard to know what to make of them. Will our righteousness ever exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees? And we know, Lord, that on our own it will not, but we thank you for Christ, who is our righteousness. And as Pastor Andrew now uh, takes these words and um, shares with us what your spirit has given him, we pray that we may hear and that your spirit may apply them to our lives, that we may not just be hearers, but that we may also be doers of this word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. All right, good morning again. Looking forward to diving into this section. I say looking forward to it. It's, all, it's also very complicated uh, in many respects. So I'm, I'm really praying for uh, just the ability to communicate clearly. Um, my guess is that you, know, you will have some questions coming out of that, out, out of this, and, and that's okay. Um, this is what we're about to tackle, I, I think, is one of the, the trickiest things in some ways of, of living out the life of Christianity. John Newton, um, who is the author of the song that we just sang, incidentally, uh, he wrote most of the lyrics. Uh, Laura Taylor, um, I think, wrote the fifth verse that we have there along as put the music together. But John Newton, who is probably most famous for Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, also said in one of his letters, and he's pretty famous for the letters that he wrote as well, he says, ignorance about the nature and design of the law is at the bottom of most of our religious mistakes. So here in the Sermon on the Mount, the passage that we come to today, Jesus is talking about the, the nature of the law. And he's talking about his relationship to the law and the law's relationship to him, actually, as we're going to see in just a moment. And this is something that's really important uh, for us to understand. Paul talks a lot about it in the New Testament. The Old Testament is filled with uh, narratives that are built around the law. We recently went through Exodus, and, and we looked at uh, different types of law there in the 
the Old Testament. We looked at the, the moral law that we have in the Ten Commandments. We looked at the civil law that was laid out, a lot of it in the Book of the Covenant there, uh, early on in Exodus, the ceremonial law. Uh, the New Testament has stuff to say about the ceremonial law when you come to the Book of Hebrews and uh, throughout. So there, there is a lot that, that goes into understanding what it is to live in the kingdom of God that centers around an understanding of the law and how do we process it. I, I think that you know this. You, you probably know it both implicitly and explicitly. Uh, explicitly, we, we have questions like, how do we handle some of that stuff in the Old Testament? How do we apply it to our lives? What does it look like to live a righteous life today? Implicitly, uh, we feel the weight of the law. We, we feel its uh, demands and we wonder, are we meeting up to these things? Even if we don't consciously wonder that, we unconsciously or subconsciously deal with it. So how do we begin to understand it? How do we begin to understand it in light of the Sermon on the Mount? Like, note where Jesus puts this. He's, he's began, he began his sermon, as we said, with the Beatitudes. And, and the thing that he wanted us to know sort of out of the gate in his sermon is he says, blessed are you if you're broken, if you're poor in spirit, if you mourn over sin, broken-hearted, hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Like, he doesn't explicitly say anything with regards to the law, but he is pointing us in a direction. And so now, as he moves on in the sermon, he is going to deal with this more explicitly. And today, we're going to talk about sort of this pivot point that's really important for us to understand. And then the next several weeks, we're going to look at specific applications that Jesus makes with regards to what uh, living under the law or living in right relationship to the law looks like in our lives as we see it played out in things like you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, uh, you shall keep your word, all of these different things that uh, Jesus is going to deal with. My outline today gives homage to Jack Miller. Uh, some of you know theologian Jack Miller. A couple years ago, we used a devotion book by him, and he's uh, probably most famous for just his teachings on grace and this idea of cheer up, cheer up, you're a lot worse off than you think. Uh, cheer up, God's grace is so much greater than you imagine, than you could, you know, ever imagine or dare hope. And as I was studying this passage, the, those words just kept ringing in my mind. And so, there you go. That's the, the outline, and hopefully that will make some sense to you as you go. So three cheer-ups for you today. Uh, the first one is this, cheer up, the law reveals Jesus. Uh, we can all breathe a sigh of relief here 
because all of the Old Testament law, and I mean all of it, I mean the moral law, the ceremonial law, the civil law, those are distinctions that aren't necessarily made in the Scripture, those specific words. It's not laid out here. Okay, you're kept into the moral law now. Okay, now you're in the civil law, the ceremonial law. But we just recognize that as God laid out uh, Old Testament Israel, there were these different aspects of life. But we can breathe a sigh of relief because these things are not separate from who Jesus is. The Old Testament is not separate from the New Testament. There is a connection. There is a hinge point. There is um, a coherence between the Old Testament and the New Testament. A lot of people have struggled over this. You know, I read the Old Testament. The Old Testament, you see a God of wrath, a God of judgment. You see a God uh, who hates uh, this type of person or that type of person. We see all of these different things. But the New Testament, the New Testament is Jesus' love. Well, no. Uh, Jesus is actually saying to us, like, if you think that way, you're thinking incorrectly. He says very explicitly, I have not come to abolish uh, the law or the prophets, but I've come to fulfill them. Throughout the scriptures, we see this close connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Jesus says it a, a different way. Uh, in Matthew chapter 11, he says, um, if I can find the right verse, uh, verses uh, 13, 14, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who has come. He who have ears, let him hear. What he is saying is all of the Old Testament was oriented towards Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophecies, which we get, right? We sort of get that part of it. We, we understand that he was born of a virgin. You know, so we go back to a prophecy like Isaiah's. We understand that he is the morning star. So we go back to a prophecy uh, like we see in Numbers. But what's interesting about the way that Jesus says it is he says that the law prophesied about Jesus until he comes. So the law is shaped in order to point us to Jesus. As we come into contact with all of the Old Testament law, we realize that it was pointing ahead to Jesus, and he is the fulfillment of that law. So it's interesting to think about, you know, laws concerning mold or laws concerning purity. It's easier when we come to ceremonial laws, laws like the sacrifices and uh, atonement sacrifices, how those things worked out. We, we can see how they have their fulfillment in Jesus. And indeed, you know, we read passages like in Hebrews 9, 10, Jesus was the great high priest. Say he was the sacrifice. It was sacrifice once for all, and then he sat down on the right hand of the Father. And we understand how Jesus fulfills those things. But what Jesus is teaching us here, and what we're invited to sort of wrestle with and, and to rest in, is that he is the fulfillment of all the law and the prophets. They've all been pointing to, they've all been prophesying about Jesus. So there is a real integration between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Jesus is the one who reveals all that the law has for us. So 
Just a couple of things here, and we're, we're going to keep going in terms of what this means for us, but just three observations first uh, when we come to this particular point that Jesus is making first here. He has not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. In fact, he says, not even the smallest jot or tittle, uh, if you know the Old Test or the uh, Old King James, a Yoda or uh, a Yod, these are the smallest letters in both the Greek and the Hebrew alphabet, uh, which is interesting in and of itself. The, the, the Greek, the New Testament alphabet, the, the, Hebrew, the Yod, the Hebrew alphabet, not the smallest uh, mark in either of the Testaments will pass away or, or will not be fulfilled until Jesus comes again, till heaven and earth pass away. So three observations for you here. You know, first, as I've said, it's pointing to Jesus. It is all pointing to Jesus. So as we read, we need to learn to read with, with Jesus-centered eyes as we're reading everything in the Old Testament. Now, that's not to say, um, you know, we just sort of jump, leapfrog to the cross without doing proper exegesis, without understanding the ways that Jesus is maybe a type or foreshadowed, or the way that the Old Testament shows us our need of what Christ will come to do. I mean, there, there are proper ways to do that, but all of, the, all of the Old Testament points us to Jesus, which is an incredible thing to think about, and it's an incredible uh, freedom for us. Secondly, we see this in the New Testament, the, the, the proper interpreter of the Old Testament is through the lens of Christ. So not only does it point us to Christ, but that is the way that we have to read it. Uh, we, we cannot obey simple Old Testament law and be saved in and of itself. Uh, it, we have to see Christ through it. He is the one that gives us the, the proper interpretation of all of these things, as we're going to see in the next several weeks. You know, Jesus goes on in the next several verses, and he gives uh, six antithesis. So he says, you have heard it said, you shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Uh, the, the Pharisees and the scribes, they, they were giving an interpretation of the law that rested on them and on the, the end of just exactly what the law said. Uh, Jesus is saying, no, you have to understand it through my lens. Uh, again, this is not pitting the law uh, of the Old Testament against the law of Jesus, but it's helping us understand that it's only through Jesus that we are going to understand the full extent of what the law is asking from us. So we're going to dive into that in just a minute, but that's the second observation. The third observation is that, as we've said, Jesus is the one that fulfills the law. And as we said in week one, this is our only hope for a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. So verse 20, Jesus says, you won't see the kingdom of heaven unless you have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And it is Jesus who fulfills the law 
and the prophets, but our focus here is on the law. Uh, Jesus is the one that fulfills the law, and it is only as we're in union with him by faith that we will ever have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. So let's, let's dig into that a little bit, and, and we'll do that by going to the second cheer up. And this is the one that catches most people off guard. Cheer up. You're a lot worse off than you think. Like, why is that good news? I mean, you're, you're telling me I've come here feeling the weight of the law at a certain degree. I've come here aware of uh, X regards to my own failure, but now you're telling me it's not only X, but it's also Y and Z, and you're telling me that that's good news. What, what is going on here, and how does that relate to this passage? Look at verse 19. For truly, I, uh, uh, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Here in verse 19, we have a clue, and we certainly see this played out in the rest of Matthew chapter 5, as to how the Pharisees and the scribes, the teachers of the law in Jesus' days, were seeking to apply the Old Testament law uh, that they were given. And they were doing it in a way that Jesus describes as relaxing the commandment. So how do we understand that? Well, there are a couple of things. If you look at the antithesis, you have heard it said, you shall not murder. Whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother uh, will be liable to judgment. What Jesus, uh, what the Pharisees seem to be doing is taking the letter of the law. You shall not murder. And that's a, a very specific word. We'll talk about this next week. has to do with actually murdering somebody, taking their life, not by accident, but by intent. And uh, it seems to be that the Pharisees are saying, as long as you don't actually do this, you're Okay. Uh, you, you, have, you have met the designs of the law, and, and you're safe. Now, you see, he goes through a bunch of these different things uh, with regards to adultery, divorce, uh, do not swear falsely, let your yes be yes, your no be no. Interesting, when you come to verse 43 in chapter 5, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This is one of the indications when we come to verse 43 that the Pharisees have their own interpretation of what the law says. Because nowhere can we find in the Old Testament law that we're told to hate our enemies. Uh, but, but Jesus is saying the, the Pharisees have an interpretation of the law. Uh, so it very specifically has to murder, intentionally taking the life of somebody else, very specifically has to do with looking at a woman lustfully, very specifically having to do with um, uh, loving your neighbor but hating your enemies. And if you meet these things, you've met the, the law's demands. And Jesus is saying, no, the law is much bigger than that. And you are called to obey at a higher level. 
What the scribes and the Pharisees are teaching is that obedience is external and formal. Uh, just meeting the, the jot and the tittle, the yoda and the, and the yud, just meeting those smallest things in the way that we have described it for you, that is sufficient formal obedience. And, and what it does then is it misses the heart of the law. So if you want to put it this way, it, it's obedience that is formal and external. It's not from our heart, and it doesn't meet the heart of of the law. And you recognize that it's not just the Pharisees and the scribes that seek to approach the law in this way. This is all of us. We, we all have this tendency to approach the law in a formal and external way, and particularly in ways, I think oftentimes in ways that, that we can meet. That, that we see ourselves as capable of meeting. In many ways, what the, what the Pharisees are doing here is they are, they are minimizing the full extent of the law. Here's how uh, John Stott talks about it. He says, what were the scribes and Pharisees doing? Uh, Calvin, he says, called them the torturous methods by which they debased the law. In general, they were trying to reduce the challenges of the law to relax. That's the word Jesus uses here, to relax the commandments of God and to make his moral demands more manageable and less exacting. So this is, this is our tendency, and this is what we have to fight against. Let me see if I can uh, maybe give some examples or some ways that we do this uh, in our lives. Uh, we, we all know from a Christian perspective that, that we are called to manage our finances in a, in a way that gives uh, glory to God. And so we oftentimes, and I know it's Family Sunday here today, so we've got a lot of young people in. We, we, we teach our kids about, you know, what do you do with your money? Like, how do you give money to church? All these types of things. We, we actually had little jars uh, that we had for our kids at different times. And in one jar went your, your church money, and one jar went your saving money, and in another jar went uh, your discretionary money or your spending money. Anybody Got an amen on the jars or anything? All right. So we've got some, got some jar folks. Now, we're trying to teach good stewardship to our kids. Um, but there is a sense, and we have this then as adults. I have different you know, funds, and we, the jars have gotten a little bit bigger, just a little bit bigger. But uh, <laughs> they oftentimes feel more pressed and empty as well. But uh, there, there's a sense in which we feel like if we have put a certain amount of money in the church jar, we've done our duty. We've met the command. You know, 10%. It would just use sort of the traditional tithe. If, I, if I've given 10%, well, then, then I've done my duty with regards to the command of God. But what Jesus wants us to understand is that that's... That's a formal obedience that's not necessarily from our heart, and it's certainly not capturing the heart of the command. The heart of the command is that everything that we have belongs to the Lord. 
And, and everything that we do in the ways that, that we give, it all reflects a giving back to the Lord. So it's not that we can look at our 5% or our 10% and say, hey, we've done it. We, we've done what the Lord has commanded us, therefore we can go on. We can't minimize these commands, but we have to expand them, and we have to realize um, that, that God is demanding much more. Take another one. Uh, as a church, we are, are very pro-life, uh, and, and we don't necessarily mean that in, in the political sense of the world word, although it's not maybe less than that, but we believe that every life is... Uh, uh, is is sanct is you know is holy and and God has created it in His image, and and we are called to to be for the life of those who are created in the image of God, whether they are unborn or born, whatever particular state they're in, whether they are refugees or in poverty or or whatever. We we are called to be for that, but we oftentimes reduce that. We reduce that down to ways that we vote. We reduce that down to the things that we do in our life or how we interact with one particular group of people over another particular group of people. But what we understand is that when, when God calls us to, to not murder, like we're going to talk about next week, He's calling us to care for every single life. And to, and to be so broad in the way that that gets applied. And this is why I say, cheer up, you're a lot worse off than you think. Because when we think about our relation to the law, we tend to think about it in ways that we can manage, in ways that reduce it down to this, this I can do. This is what the law means for me, and, and, and I can do it or I don't do it, and, and we feel ourselves along according to those standards. But Jesus wants us to maximize the effect of the law, the impact of it, in all of these different areas. And we're going to talk about a number of different areas over the next several weeks. But in doing that, we realize that we are really a lot further off from ever meriting any righteousness than, than we really could hope for. So this is important for us to recognize, and it's important for us to sit with, and it's important for us to, to really... Uh, to really realize in terms of our own Christian life. Because if we don't, if, if, we, if we don't maximize the law and then also maximize sort of our inability to keep it, uh, there are several things that, that flow out of that. One is you're going to be a very prideful person. And I think this is one of the things that marked the Pharisees, right? They, they had this sense of pride. They kept the law. We tied the mint, the dill, and the cumin. Thank God that I am not like this publican. You know, I have done all of these different things. There will be a pride of life. And you can, also, you can often tell somebody who, who doesn't have a proper understanding of the law and how it works in their life by their pride. They think they have it figured out. 
Uh, They think they have it figured out with regards to how to handle the pandemic, with regards to how to, you know, live in relation to the world, all of these different things. There is a pride of life uh, that comes through. Uh, Secondly, there's, there's a lack of joy. One of the things that I think you can realize, and again, this is sort of Jack Miller and, and some of his thinking, is that when we adopt a pharisaical or a scribe's attitude toward the law, we, we not only minimize the law, but by effect, we, we minimize our sin. Because if I say that the generosity that God uh, desires of me is to give 10% of my money, and I only give 5%, well, then my sin is actually only 5% of my money. And and so when I think about the grace that I need, I I only need 5% uh, of the grace in order to cover what I lacked. But if we understand that generosity is all of our life and all of our goods and all of our money and stewardship and all of that, and I realize just how far short I am coming, I don't need just a 5% cross, I need a 100% cross. And when I recognize that God's grace is this 100%, that He does it all, that I, I don't do anything that he has washed us in his blood, he has met the demands of the law in the way that I never could, that's when we experience joy. That's when we experience what it means to be washed in the Savior's blood and to be made clean because now we, we haven't contributed anything to our salvation, but we, we have received grace upon grace Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And and that's when you begin to live in real joy. So if you meet somebody who doesn't have joy, this might be something to to prick at. Or if you are a person who isn't living in joy, perhaps there is a relationship to the law. The third thing that I will just, um, I'll just mention, we'll come back to it. You know, Jesus says, uh, uh, well, the third thing that I'll mention is that our obedience to the law is not abrogated. It's, it's not, like, we still are called to, to obey the law. I mean, Jesus says we have to hunger and thirst after righteousness. Now, we recognize ultimately that it's a righteousness that comes from outside of ourselves, but that doesn't mean that we have no obligations to the law. I mean, this is Paul's whole point, and Paul goes through a lot of this, Romans chapter 3, Romans chapter 6. Since grace has come, does that mean that we can just go on sinning then? By no means. Meganoito, Paul says. Absolutely not. God forbid. We are still called to to follow the law, not just the minimal law, but the whole of the law. We are to pursue righteousness, but not as a burden. This is what the Pharisees did. Matthew 23, verse 4. They tied up heavy burdens and laid them on the backs of their people. But when we really understand that Jesus has kept the law for us, we now obey the law, but not as a burden, but as a joy. 
joy. Here's how Sinclair Ferguson puts it. He says, God's law is no longer an external rule that we find burdensome because God has given us a new heart committed to Him and His ways, and we want to obey Him. This is often one of the first discoveries a new Christian makes. It's no longer an external rule that we find burdensome, but God has given us a new heart. Jeremiah 31 says, He has written the law on our hearts. You know, no longer is this law outside of us, but it's inside of us. So that doesn't mean that it's less, but it's more. So should Christians be pursuing righteousness and sexuality? Absolutely. Should Christians be pursuing righteousness in the way that they view their wealth? Absolutely. Jesus does not relax the commands of the law, not at all. Jesus actually has heightened to a certain degree. I mean, the law was always pointing in that direction, but Jesus has heightened the commands of the law, so the righteousness that we are called to. And notice he says, we need to teach this righteousness. Now, we have to be careful, and we have our young people here. We don't want to make little Pharisees, right? We don't want ourselves to become little Pharisees. It's not an external adherence to the law that we teach our kids. But we need to help them understand what we're coming to understand is that when Jesus buys us with his righteousness, he unites us to himself. And that law now is not an external thing by which we can merit salvation, but it's an internal thing whereby we demonstrate not only our love for the law, but our love for the Savior. One writer puts it this way, he says, the Jews aim to satisfy the law of God, but the members of God's kingdom aim to respond in wholehearted gratitude to the love of God, and that attitude knows no limits. It never cries enough. Like we are motivated internally, the law written on our hearts, to pursue that righteousness in every aspect of the law. We had a great time this last Friday night. We had about 100 uh, area young people out talking about sexuality and is all love really love? Is that, is that really true? Our culture tells us that. How do we think about it? One of the things that observed that evening was that, you know, the church has failed when it comes to sexuality and its teaching and sexuality, and we, we oftentimes fail in a couple of ways. Like, one, we have, uh, we have minimized the law, and we have said, you know, if you're not doing this, if you don't look like this, you, you are outside of grace, and you're not even going to experience grace from us, and we have shut the door on those whose sexuality doesn't look like ours. And that has been a failure of the church that continues to haunt us as we go on. But we have also failed in the places where we have compromised, you know, God's teachings with regards to sexuality. And this is what Jesus is saying, is like, you have to understand the law of God, understand that it reflects the heart of God, and you have to teach that you're not going to get into heaven merely by an external obedience, but that you also have to respond to the full teaching of God as it is laid out on our hearts. Now, I got to move on. Uh, 
the last thing that I want to highlight for you, and we're going to continue to play this out as we go throughout this week. Cheer up. You're, you're far more loved than you ever dared hope or imagine. Two weeks ago, we talked about the alien righteousness. We talked about the external righteousness. When we come to verse 20, we get to the heart of, um, of what Jesus is saying here. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. It's his righteousness. It's a righteousness that comes from outside of us, a righteousness that is greater than the scribes and the Pharisees. The scribes and the Pharisees only had their righteousness, and we know how insufficient their righteousness is, our righteousness is. We will never merit anything. But Christ's righteousness, his finished work on the cross, when he satisfied the demands of the law, he satisfied both of its curses and he brought about its blessings. Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was because the law had not been satisfied. And Jesus satisfies that. And when we surrender to him, sort of the attitude of the Beatitudes, when we have the the broken spirit, we're mourning over sin, there's a meekness that comes into our lives, we're united to Christ, we have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees because it's Christ's righteousness, the perfect righteousness, the, the darling of heaven, the one who God looks at and loves, we are united to him. And when God looks at us, he loves us. And he not only loves us, but he takes up residence. And this is so important. You know, it's interesting when, when Paul is talking about the law in Romans 8, Galatians 4 and 5, uh, two things in, in particular, he always talks about the law and the spirit. And the Spirit is so crucial to our understanding of what it means to live in an era where the law has been fulfilled through Christ. Uh, It means that the Spirit has come, and, and therefore not only has the law been written on our hearts, but we have an internal engine that gives us the power to go day by day by day by day. Uh, we, we have the ability to pursue the righteousness of Christ with the joy of Christ because we have the Spirit of Christ who has taken up residence inside of us. So now it's not a matter of conforming to that external law, but it's being who we are by the very power of God himself. We have that within us, and by it we reflect then the kingdom of heaven. You know, throughout this, Jesus has been talking about don't don't get stuck. Don't get stuck in what you can see on earth. You know, seek not he says seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness and all this other stuff. That'll be added to you. Uh, but don't get stuck on on this or seek the kingdom of heaven. A, a more beautiful, a more lovely place, a, a kingdom of, of, uh, of new life, of perfect liberty, of uh, union with Christ, power of the Spirit of God, the law that is fulfilled. This is the kingdom that we both have now and are longing for as we look ahead. When Jack Miller died, uh, artist Charlie Peacock wrote a song, and he actually called it Cheer Up. Um, 
And he, some of the lyrics of the song go like this, and I think it sort of captures and sums up a little bit of what Christ has been saying to us. He has come to fulfill the law, so much bigger than we ever imagined, and we're so much more condemned by it uh, than, than we want to believe. But the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ is so much greater. It's just like God to make a hero from a sinner. It's just like God to choose the loser, not the winner. It's just like God to tell a story through the week, to let the gospel speak through the life of a man who'd be the first to say, cheer up, church. You're worse off than you think. Cheer up, church. You're standing at the brink, but don't despair. Do not fear. Grace is near. God has satisfied the desires of the law and invites us to find ourselves before him. Will you pray with me? Lord, we are so grateful for just a sense of this. We realize that we've probably only scratched the surface, and I'm sure there are many questions and ways that people want to understand this as we seek to apply it. We, on the one hand, have a, we want to push away any type of law, we want only the law of our own liberty to do what we want. On the other hand, we, we want just a very clear sense of the law so that we can obey it and, and be done with it. But Lord, you haven't given that to us. You've given us uh, something that is so much greater, something that reveals a heart, something that we could never uh, follow or merit. You've given us at the same time a righteousness that has fulfilled that. You have done it. What we could never do, you have done. And now you have given us your very spirit so that we can pursue that same life with joy and with freedom, uh, knowing that you mark us on the basis of what Christ has done, not what we have done. Lord, I, I pray for those who are still struggling with this concept in one way or another. Maybe they are, are Christians who lack joy, uh, live with pride. Lord, I, I pray that you would set them free into a life of joy. Maybe there are those who just have never bowed the knee to you truly, and, and part of it has to do with what they perceive to be a Christian life like. Lord, I pray that you would show them the beauty of the law fulfilled through Jesus Christ. Lord, we, we offer our lives to you, and we're grateful for this good news. In Jesus' name, amen.